Um, without further ado, um, I will introduce our speaker for tonight, Lloyd Chapman. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks very much, everyone. Uh, so I'm um, currently working on outreach at Giving What We Can, uh, which is based just around the corner. And you're all more than welcome to come and visit us if you would ever like to. Um, and my aim in life, which might seem a bit wishy-washy perhaps, but I really do do believe in it, is to try and use maths to make the world a better place. Uh, I'm actually also a PhD student in maths at the university here. So by way of an introduction about uh, the subject matter for the talk, which is that aid works on average, um, I thought I would uh, talk about some of the myths about aid that Bill Gates discussed in his uh, letter from the Gates Foundation this year. And for those of you who have been sceptics in the pub before, uh, this is in some way an anti-sceptics talk. I'm actually going to say why some of the people who are sceptical about aid working or not are actually a bit uh, misguided in what they've uh, concluded from their investigations. So the three myths that were in the Gates letter, I hope you can see that, cut off the top. Uh, from this year were that poor countries are doomed to stay poor the second was that foreign aid is a waste of money and the third was that saving lives leads to overpopulation so I'm going to discuss each of these and say say why they're not true so in 1960 the uh, Distribution of global incomes looks something like the red graph here. So, if you've got income on the vertical, sorry, if you've got number of people on the vertical axis and income on the horizontal axis, in 1960 most of the world's population lived in poor countries and were surviving on less than a dollar a day. And a lot of the world's population, the second lump here, uh, were had significantly higher income. They were living in the Western developed countries. But since then, about a billion people have risen out of extreme poverty. And actually now, there's just a single hump in the distribution of income. And most people are living in lower or middle income countries. Uh, And the UK and the US would be somewhere way off on the right-hand side. And there are various other indicators of how... uh, there are far fewer po- poor countries than there were in 1960. Over the last 20 years, uh, average income per person around the world has risen from $1,300 to uh, $2,200. If you take the life expectancy, for example, of women in sub-Saharan Africa, it's risen from 41 to 57. In 1970, there were... Uh, less than, or in the low 40%, uh, around 40% of people, children were in school, now it's over 75%. And there are fewer people in the world today who go hungry or are suffering from malnutrition. But this is all, these are all averages, um, means, and this might in some way mask the fact that there's still huge variation within countries and between countries. So an example of that is the average income per person in Ethiopia is only $800, whereas in Botswana, 
it's $12,000 and both of those countries are part of sub-Saharan Africa. So the second myth was that foreign aid is just a waste of money. Um, and for this I thought I'd start by asking people how much they think should be spent on, what, what percentage of the UK budget do people think should be spent on aid? So I'll just go for some different ranges. So who in the room can I have a show of hands? Who thinks it should be more than 10%? Not, not so many people. Less than 10%? There's a few more people. Less than 1%? Okay, there's a couple of people. Uh, that's fair enough. Um, and I guess the thing that's uh, interesting or you actually care about is how much is spent by the UK government on aid each year. So for the same ranges, who thinks it's more than 10%? Uh, less than 10%? Okay, quite a lot of people think it's less than 10%. Less than 1%? Okay, a lot of people. It's a very well-informed audience. That's right, actually, it's less than 1%. It's only 0.7% of the UK budget, which works out as about £11.3 billion, or at least last year, that's what it was. Uh, so uh, one of the areas in which aid is uh, believed to have been most effective is in different health interventions and here are some examples uh, from the last 50 years so we have the Gavi Alliance which is uh, an alliance of countries uh, both developing countries and developed countries donor countries uh, pharmaceutical companies and the uh, alliance, the aim of the alliance is to provide vaccinations um, and uh, treatment, uh, yeah, sorry, vaccinations for people living in developing countries that are readily available in developed countries. And since 2,440 million children have been immunised against vaccine-preventable diseases, and in uh, five years from 2011 to 2015, a further 243 million children will be uh, immunised as a result of the Gavi Alliance programme. Another example, success story of health aid is in polio, the attempt to eradicate polio uh, that started in 1988 and have led to a massive reduction in the number of cases annually uh, of the disease and then there's also the global fund which many people may have heard about uh, which has delivered antiretroviral drugs against HIV to over 6 million people treated more than 11 million people against tuberculosis, uh, for tuberculosis and distributed uh, 360 million nets around the world to protect people from malaria So the third myth uh, was about overpopulation and the idea that if you save lives, you're just going to end up uh, leading to there being too many people. Uh, but the evidence actually shows the opposite is true. So as uh, child mortality rates fall, so do birth rates, and therefore so does population growth. And this, you can see this on this graph for Brazil, which shows that since 1965, all three of those have been decreasing together. And the idea behind why this happens is that 
as uh, mortality rates fall, child mortality rates fall, women are better able to plan when they have children, they're more confident that their children will survive and there are less uh, unplanned pregnancies. And there's can be a lot of benefits to uh, decreasing child mortality um, and also decreasing birth rates. So, for example, in South Korea, um, birth rates have fallen significantly since 1980 and the uh, part of the population, the people in the population who were born during the baby boom years have now uh, aged and are of working age and because of the declining birth rates there are less dependents in South Korea and so with a bigger workforce and less dependents uh, there's been massive economic growth in, in the country. And there are various other factors that lead to uh, or are important in, in declining birth rates and that still need huge amounts of work. And they are women's empowerment uh, and education, teaching young women about sex, contraception, making sure that they have access to resources for family planning and, and contraception. So thought I'd say a bit about some uh, people who have been quite strongly opposed to aid and have written books on the subject. Uh, some of these people you may have heard of. Um, also, I'll talk about each of these people in turn. So Dambiza Moyo is um, a Kenyan-born economist who wrote the book uh, Dead Aid, in which he said... In the last 60 years, over $1 trillion of aid has gone to Africa uh, and there's not much good to show for it, was her conclusion. Um, oops, sorry. And she said that this amounts to about $1,000 for every, everybody on the, on the face of the earth. Um, and this is a slightly, slightly strange because if you do the calculation and you divide $1 trillion by the population of the world, which is about 7 billion, you find that it actually comes out to about $142 per person or about $2.3 per person per year for the, for the period that the aid was given to, to Africa. So maybe what she was really getting at was the uh, figure when you look at it in the, just for sub-Saharan Africa so if you divide $1 trillion by population of sub-Saharan Africa which is about 440 million it comes out uh, over $2,000 per person or about $38 per person per year for the period that the aid was given and uh, these are actually when you think about it really quite small numbers uh, even, in the, even in the context of the kind of salaries that people would receive in developing countries, $40 per year is, is not a significant increase in their income. So when you kind of evaluate whether there's been a lot of uh, good to show for that money or not, you have to think about what it represents in terms of a wage increase, say, for those people. It's really not very much. So 
uh, Dambisa Moyo really made her assessment on whether aid has been worthwhile or not in terms of economic development. And that's probably not the only thing or maybe even the main thing that you really want to consider when you're thinking about whether aid has been worthwhile or not. Um, and to say that there's not been any good to show for the aid that's been given to Africa seems a bit uh, unrealistic, really, because life expectancy has risen from about 31 years to nearly 56 years uh, since 1950. And that's just one measure of the kinds of improvement that there have been uh, in that region of the world. So another very well-known opponent of aid, perhaps the most well-known, is somebody called William Easterly. He wrote the book Dead Man's... Oh, sorry, White Man's Burden, <laughs> um, in which he said that uh, as much as $2.3 trillion in, had been given in aid to Africa uh, and made rather than saying that not, there was not much good to show for it, actually said that it's, that it's done a lot of harm, um, so much ill and so little good. And I guess one interesting thing about this is that he doesn't spend very much time uh, considering health aid, which, as I said earlier, is probably one of the areas that actually has been most successful. Uh, he has only one chapter in which he discusses health aid, um, and in that chapter, he spends two pages talking about health aid that works, briefly listing successes, so vaccination against measles, uh, oral rehydration therapy, the eradication of smallpox. And he spends the re rest of the chapter, 24 pages, talking about uh, the HIV epidemic and comparing it in its intractability to the Vietnam War for the US which is a slightly unusual analogy, but one that we'll come back to between battling infectious disease and fighting wars later on. So the third person was Roger Riddle, who's a development uh, specialist actually based in Oxford. His book was Does, Does Aid Really Work? And he talked about the eradication of smallpox and river blindness in the book, mentioned them as clear successes of, of health aid. But he doesn't actually focus on just how successful they were, and he doesn't compare uh, treating river blindness or eradicating smallpox. And actually more money, much more money has been spent on treating river blindness, which is also known as onchocerasis. Uh, but it, the eradication of smallpox having had less money spent on it, has actually done too much, about 200, much, 200 times as much good uh, in terms of the number of lives that have been saved and the improvement in people's quality of life. So you can see it's, it's not necessarily a clear picture uh, about whether aid works or not. And we really need to try and find some clarity in the way we think about it. And there are various questions that we might want to ask um, I guess the one that Dan Bizamoyo looks at um, that a lot of people are interested in are whether aid produces economic growth uh, and whether that growth is sustained or not. We might want to think about whether different sectors work. So does health aid work if we improve water and sanitation? What's the effect of that? 
is education what we need should we just be giving money directly there are various different things that we compare we can compare in terms of their effectiveness we want to know whether some aid has negative effects um, think about how we could measure that and think about whether on average does the typical dollar that's given as aid uh, have a positive effect might think about it in a different way we might think about what proportion of aid works is the proportion big enough to make it worth it overall but when we actually try and go and find the evidence for whether aid uh, is, is worthwhile or not it's quite difficult to find there's very little evidence to say that aid produces uh, clear economic growth some people have even said that it's, it has negative effect on economic growth. Some people say that it's not had any effect at all. And this is true of different aid programs as well. It works out that some aid programs actually make things better. Some cause some harm, and many, many do nothing at all. So I think the question we really want to ask, and the one that I'm going to ask in this talk, is does the average dollar that's given as aid uh, do enough good to make giving money as aid worthwhile overall so we can think about this uh, in terms of lining up all of the different aid programs from the ones that are most harmful over to the left hand side the ones that are most beneficial on the right hand side where the vertical axis uh, is telling you about how much harm they're doing or how much benefit you're getting from the particular programme. So along here are all the different programmes and this is the amount of good or harm that they are doing. So then the areas represented in blue and red represent the total benefit of aid uh, and the total harm and we're interested in the balance of these two things. So you might think, oh, well, we just need to look at what proportion of this aid is actually doing some good but that's not taking account of the fact that money is being put into this uh, so we actually want to know whether uh, we're getting sufficient return for investing in aid we're really seeing enough benefit to make it worthwhile spending the money on it and you can think of that as a line on this graph a dotted line here uh, above which actually putting the money into the particular program is, is uh, worthwhile we're getting enough benefit from it to make the cost worth it and so then the thing that we're really interested in is the kind of length of this line in the blue area, that's the proportion of aid of the different programs that are actually worth the cost And if you think about where the average effect of aid, the average benefit or harm would be in this kind of hypothetical scenario where we're looking at there being a more positive effect from aid than negative effect, the average would come out as around here. And then you can think about the benefit that you're getting from uh, actually having aid at all as, as being the difference between the dotted line and the solid line there. So that was a hypothetical scenario. When we look at some actual data for 
this is for, for health programs it's from the disease control priorities project um, for different health programs in sub-Saharan Africa you find that the distribution looks something like this so you can see that really what we've got are a very small number of programs that are being uh, extremely effective but a huge number actually that are not very effective at all um, um, but very few that are actually causing any harm and it works out for this data and actually the line uh, above which those programs become worth the cost is actually very low down so even for these ones that don't appear to be doing much good in relative terms it's still actually worth funding them what's, what's the y-axis so in this graph I think yeah I'm pretty sure the y-axis would be what are called quality adjusted life years so it means the number of extra years of healthy life that you get uh, from from the particular health intervention so I'm not 100% sure whether this is divided by the cost I don't think it is I think it probably is qualities per thousand dollars yep I'm pretty sure that's right yeah, sorry that's not labelled so it's likely actually that the distribution of effectiveness of different programs looks something a bit more like this where there are a very small number of programs that are really effective but actually a lot that are um, that really aren't having much effect at all maybe some small positive benefit and a few that are actually causing some some harm and we're interested we're interested in just how effective are these programs over here is the effect of things that are really beneficial enough to make uh, all of the different aid programs worthwhile overall so probably the biggest success story of aid is the eradication of smallpox um, smallpox you probably know is an extremely unpleasant disease causes a horrible rash over the skin uh, it kills one in three people who are infected with it in a very short space of time, takes about 10 days and 80% of children that are infected with the disease die from it and 10% of people that get the disease end up blind so to put into context just how much harm smallpox has done as a disease to the human race you uh, can think about it as compared to the number of people that have died in wars in the 20th century the figure for which is somewhere between 160 and 240 million whilst the figure for the number of people that divide, have died from smallpox is somewhere between 300 and 500 million so you can see that it's caused nearly twice the number of deaths as all the wars of the 20th century so I thought I'd give you a brief timeline for uh, the eradication of smallpox. Actually, it started uh, attempts to 
prevent the spread of, spread of smallpox started over a thousand years ago with inoculation, which was where uh, infected tissue from people suffering with the disease was uh, taken and injected into people who were healthy or introduced through their nose or in other um, unpleasant, pretty unpleasant means. And the idea of this was to uh, give those people a milder form of the disease from which they develop immunity. But as you can imagine, it's an extremely risky practice. Uh, about 1% of people that were inoculated in that way died and it could cause outbreaks as well. A much more successful approach was uh, the development of vaccination by Edward Jenner in the late 18th century. You may know the story. He uh, took cowpox, which is a milder, in some ways a milder form of smallpox, and injected it into a small boy uh, to give him, give him the disease. And then to prove that the boy had developed immunity, uh, he took, small, took smallpox from somebody who was suffering with it and injected it into James Phipps. And uh, to everyone's relief, the boy didn't, didn't develop smallpox, um, which yeah, I don't think you would get away with it current, in uh, current health and safety circumstances. It was a good thing he was confident in what he was doing. Um, or lucky but it's said that James uh, that, sorry that Edward Jenner is probably in some ways by proving that vaccination could work saved more lives than anybody else in, in history uh, so the program to eradicate smallpox kicked off when the World Health Assembly uh, passed a resolution in 1959 to start a program aimed at eradicating the disease um, the first efforts to vaccinate people were using something called a jet injector uh, and this used pressurised gas in order to introduce the vaccine through the skin of the person being vaccinated without the need for a needle um, but it worked out that actually a much cheaper and more effective way of doing it was to use something called a bifurcated needle which has two pins uh, and the needle was pushed into a solution containing the vaccine and the droplet held in suspension between the two prongs of the needle and that was then jabbed into people's arms several times so that they developed um, d- developed <laughs> so that they developed yeah, none of these methods are particularly pleasant developed um, scarring and scabbing on the skin and a sufficient immune reaction to, to develop immunity to the disease. So a really big step in the programme of eradication was the development of um, a freeze-dried vaccine, which meant that the vaccine would last more than 48 hours and uh, prevented it from becoming contaminated, which made it much easier to get it out in the field, get it to the people that needed, needed it. But all of, despite all of these um, technological improvements in the uh, ways of vaccinating against smallpox, it wasn't until 1967 that the programme was really intensified. And it's interesting that 
it actually only got through the World Health Organization um, by two votes. Uh, there was a lot of resistance to providing more um, donate, uh, funding for the, for the program. Uh, donor countries, a lot of donor countries weren't, weren't keen on the idea of giving more money to try and, try and eradicate it. As part of this, uh, there was a big kind of public information program. These are fairly amazing posters from the time um, telling people what they, that they need to go and get back, vaccinated to help eradicate smallpox. Um, the, probably the biggest step actually towards eradicating smallpox was came in 1968 when uh, an epidemiologist called Bill Fragi came up with a way of reducing the number of people that you needed to uh, vaccinate against smallpox and did this by basically isolating new cases of the disease. So where um, they were very vigilant and wherever new cases were reported, they would go and locally vaccinate everybody in that area. And rather than needing to vaccinate 80% of the population, you uh, only had to vaccinate 6% to have the same effect. The last natural case of smallpox came in 1977. Uh, it was this Somalian man called Ali Marlin. He actually survived at the time. Uh, this is him after, and you can see where he, he bears the uh, scars of the disease on his skin. The last death was a fairly tragic story and not probably what you'd expect. Uh, a woman called Janet Parker, who was working at the University of but Birmingham, contracted smallpox because it was being stored in a lab underneath where she was working. She was working in a dark room and uh, they were doing research on smallpox in the labs beneath her and it's thought that it managed to pass through the ventilation system and she contracted the disease and died shortly afterwards. It was very tragic. But a year later, the World Health Organization testified that uh, smallpox had been eradicated globally. So what were the key ingredients necessary to eradicate the disease? Well, the World Health Organization uh, was probably the main factor by passing the resolutions for the eradication program, organizing countries to donate to the program, uh, and also organizing the distribution of vaccines in the field. The heat-stable vaccine was a really important part. The strategy of immunizing people where there were outbreaks of smallpox was an absolutely huge factor. And... Not, lastly, but not at all least, there was financing. Without the money from the donor countries, there's no way that the program could have been uh, launched and implemented. So the costs actually for when the for the main part of the program from 1967 to when it was certified that it had been eradicated in 1979 were half a billion for countries where the disease wasn't endemic, one billion in countries where it was giving a total of one and a half billion and the savings in terms of the money uh, that was being spent on trying to eradicate smallpox 
before uh, it, it actually was. Well, one billion for the US every year. This is actually annual, not in total. And 7.4 billion in the endemic countries. So if we go back to the comparison between the number of people that have died in war and as a result of smallpox and look at the number of people on average that have died each year, it's between 1.6 and 2.4 million for people who died in war, between 3 and 5 for those that died of smallpox. But actually, at the start of the 20th century, more than 5 million people were dying each year from smallpox. And this was decreasing uh, as the programme to eradicate smallpox was continuing. So actually it had fallen to about 3 million in 1950. And when the programme really st- was really stepped up in 1967, it was about 1.5 to 2 million people that were dying annually from the disease. So if you do the maths, you can work out that that actually about 60 to 120 million lives were saved as a result of eradicating smallpox. So you can think, you can do a quick calculation to try and work out how effective uh, eradicating smallpox has been. So if you divide the costs to all of the countries by the number of lives that were saved or the lower estimation of the number of lives that were saved, it works out as about $25 per life saved, which I would argue is pretty pretty good value for money. Um, I think if, if I asked you now if you would save somebody's life for $25, I think you'd probably say yes. Or I hope you'd say yes. <laughs> um, but we can think about this in a different way. We can say, what? how would it look if we just ignored all of the different types of aid all of the different all of the other health programs just thought about how much uh, would it cost to save these 60 million lives if we'd spent all of the money that's ever been spent on aid to do so and work out then what it would cost to save save each life and so four trillion dollars is supposed to be an upper estimate you if you remember earlier on, uh, Dambisa Moyo said it was one trillion. William Eastley said two point three trillion. That was the last sixty years. So imagine four trillion is probably fair as an upper estimate for the amount of money that could have been spent on aid over the last century. Then it works out as about sixty-seven thousand dollars per life saved. So you probably think, well, that's a lot of money. Is that is that is that good value for money? Um, I would argue that really is good value for money. is 1% of what the US government will spend to save a life and is about what the NHS will spend to save two years of life. So eradicating smallpox really does live over in the right-hand side of this graph and it's probably actually way off at the top on the right-hand side. So there are a few other programs, health-related aid programs, that have been extremely successful. Uh, and they're in preventing malaria, treating diarrheal disease, and immunizing uh, against uh, different diseases. 
So you probably know about malaria. It's, pa- it's caused by a parasite that's transmitted when mosquitoes uh, carrying the parasite bite humans. It causes really extreme flu-like symptoms, gives you fever, uh, vomiting. It's very unpleasant and can occasionally lead to death. Uh, the way it's been combated is through distributing bed nets that people can sleep under that are treated with insecticide so they protect people from being bitten and also uh, have the effect of killing mosquitoes that come near the net. Other ways that you can fight the, fight the disease are by spraying insecticide indoors to kill mosquitoes and treatment with anti-malaria medicines. In 2011, the amount of money that was spent fighting malaria was 1.84 billion uh, internationally and 0.63 billion for countries where malaria is a massive problem. And through fighting malaria, the number of annual deaths has dropped from 3.8 million to about 0.7 million. Another area where there's been massive reductions in the number of deaths is diarrheal illnesses. It was actually back in 1831 uh, when cholera was endemic in a lot of places that intravenous therapy was introduced and it cut the number of people that died from 70% to 40%. In the 60s, oral rehydration therapy which is a very fancy name for basically giving people water which has salt and sugar and maybe a few other things in as well uh, was used and that's been as you can imagine incredibly effective because it's so cheap and it's so easy to introduce and has led to the number of people dying due to diarrheal illnesses to drop from 30% to just above 3%. Other uh, successes have been in immunisation. Probably the biggest one is vaccinating against measles. It's estimated that about 250 million, sorry, 200 million people have died in the last 150 years due to measles. And this is something that really draws out the distinction between rich countries and poor countries uh, for the lack of vaccines against measles being available in poor countries 10% of people who get it die whereas in rich countries it's only 0.1% something that's quite topical is eradication of polio since it, the programme started in 1988 the number of cases the annual number of cases of polio has dropped by 99% from about 350,000 per year to under 500 just last month, India was declared polio-free, which was thought to leave only uh, three countries in which the disease was still endemic, which was Nigeria, Afghanistan and Pakistan, but actually uh, some cases have been reported in Syria as well. Uh, so the fight against polio is ongoing, but it's believed to be nearing its conclusion. And there's a massive effort now to try and rid the world of polio by 2018. Uh, which will save about two billion a year that's currently being spent to to 
treat uh, to try and eradicate polio. So overall, the number of illnesses, uh, sorry, the number of deaths due to vac- uh, vaccinatable diseases has dropped from 5 million in 1960 to about 1.4 million uh, just after the millennium. And if you look at the different areas of health aid, you can see the massive reductions in the number of deaths uh, over the last 40 or 50 years, in some cases less. And you can see that all of these are considerably higher. And if you think of the cumulative effect, it's much, much larger than that, than having no wars in the 20th century would have been in terms of the number of lives that, that would be saved or that have been saved in the case of these interventions. So what are the conclusions of this? Well, it's complicated, as you, as you might expect. Some aid is, is actually successful, some isn't. But the real point that you have to focus on is that the best interventions have been extremely good and enough actually to outweigh even maybe the majority of interventions that haven't been that beneficial and some that might have actually done some harm. So the point is, and the really important thing is, that even if you just consider something like eradicating smallpox, it works out that on average the money that's been spent on aid has been worthwhile even if all of the other uh, ways it's been spent were effectively worthless. And I guess all of this emphasises the importance of looking at the cost effectiveness in these different interventions and trying to find what are the really big wins that you can get by treating different things. And that leads me on to talk about what giving what we can do uh, and who they are. Giving what we can is a community of now nearly getting towards 500 people. I think it will be there fairly soon. And all of those people donate at least 10% of their salaries to the most cost-effective charities. And giving what we can really has two aims in what it's trying to do. It's trying to get people to give more money and most importantly make sure that people give more effectively so if you think of the percentage of people's salary that they're giving on one axis and the cost effectiveness in uh, what they're donating to along the other axis then the area given in blue here represents the total impact that they can have and it works out that people vary in what they give by an order of magnitude some people might give 1% some people might give 10 some people might give 50 but the difference is really actually made in the cost effectiveness the cost effectiveness of different charities varies by up to several orders of magnitude and for the average giver that's going to make a much bigger difference to the impact that they're having with their donations than just whether they give a little bit more money 
So the four charities that Giving What We Can recommend are these four charities. Against Malaria Foundation, who buy and distribute bed nets to protect people against malaria. Schistomyosis Control Initiative, who distribute drugs that are donated by pharmaceutical companies uh, to people in developing countries to treat them for uh, parasites. Deworm the World, who do a similar sort of thing to SCI, but work a lot with governments to try and help them start their own programs, uh, deworming programs, treating school children. And then Project Healthy Children, who work on fortifying stable foods and work with governments as well to put in pro- uh, protocols and mandatory standards for uh, food fortification to ensure that people aren't malnourished. So how can you make a difference? Well, probably the main way you can make a difference is by taking the pledge, so donating 10% of your income. Um, and if anybody is keen to do that, do let me know. That would be fantastic. You can try out giving, which is where you uh, give whatever percentage of your salary you're happy to for however long you want to, and then decide at the end of that period whether it's something you want to carry on doing. But probably the main thing you can do is encourage other people to give and give to effective charities. That's the thing that will make the most difference probably overall so thanks very much (laughs)